0: Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Using a visualization uh, and using a uh, the sort of guided practice that we did of the ideal parent to create a secure sense of attachment, security, is by no means at all new. Not just that it's also been done in early Buddhism with devanusati, visualizing angelic beings. But for centuries, people in theistic religions have, of course, uh, tried to establish a sense of security by having what they call a relationship with a god. And that's one of the reasons why, of course, in 12-step recovery, there's such that emphasis upon um, having a higher power or visualizing uh, a God. In essence, God, I don't, I'm not a God-believing person, but if you do, it's skillful. It's just a, an attachment figure. God is an ideal attachment figure so long as you're not visualizing a judgmental, cruel God. If you visualize a God, in fact, if you think of the way people describe uh, their concept of God, it's clearly a compensatory figure that is addressing unmet attachment needs from early life. Very often people say, my God is always there, always available, always cares about me. Well, of course, because that's what I secure attachment is so as a compensatory figure it's entirely an adequate wonderful practice and um, you know what, why I teach the ideal parent is because simply because I'm I don't personally I grew up in a, a family that had lost a large amount due to the, in the holocaust so my, my parents were not uh, tending to believe that there was any benign uh, force over, overlooking the universe, and that was deeply instilled in me. But still, I want this to be available, this secure visualization. So that's why I, I would teach the ideal parent. Now, also, some of the qualities we're trying to uh, develop when we turned it around in the meditation, we viewed ourselves as a child that was vulnerable and we were sending love and kindness and acceptance. This is exceedingly similar to what in early Buddhism is known as the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas are the divine abodes associated with unconditional friendliness and kindness, unconditional compassion, unconditional. Uh, appreciation, all those are major factors in attachment. The final Brahma Vihara in early Buddhism is equanimity. And interestingly enough, that's another quality that we need from an attachment figure. An attachment figure mirrors our emotions up to an extent, but crucially, the ideal or the good enough mother, or the good enough father, or the good enough parent while letting you know that they see that you're upset, you're frightened, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're lonely, the good enough caregiver or secure attachment figure also conveys to you, I get it that you're sad, but I'm not sad. I'm okay, but I'll stay with you until you, you calm down or you feel better. It's if the child feels that the father or the mother will, you know, if only the parent only mirrors, but doesn't convey, I get it. You're unhappy, or you're uncomfortable right now, but I'm not, and it's gonna be okay. If that doesn't happen, it's known as marking. If the parent doesn't mark itself as okay, then the child begins to feel that its emotions will unduly dysregulate everybody around it, and then the child will also be scared of expressing itself. So crucially, the ideal, uh, or the good enough caregiver first says, I see how you're feeling. Oops, you're sad. Oh, but I'm okay. And it's going to be, a, I'll be with you. I'll be here. And I guarantee you in time, it'll be okay. So in the Brahma Viharas, we're doing the same thing. We're essentially conveying to ourselves kindness, appreciation, uh empathy or compassion, but also a sense that now I have new tools. I see that this younger inner child in me, as it it were, is terrified, but I have new tools. I'm now an adult. I don't have to be pulled into this. And it's the same thing like an ideal therapist. If you see an ideal therapist, the therapist would sit and empathize, but at the same time they they convey, I'm okay so your emotions cannot consume me i can i can provide uh, a, a kind of a stable reliable base that can uh, in some way down regulate you okay so um, a major factor in course in addictive behaviors and and um, uh, maladaptive defensive behaviors and uh, all sorts of obsessive ideations and and so forth, is from these early damaged attachments from childhood, the child, as I was mentioning earlier, um, all children when there's not a context or a family system where there 's not enough reliable care and attention and love. Uh, explain it in a very rudimentary way, they come to the conclusion that there's something unlovable about themselves. There's something not good enough about me. Otherwise, my daddy wouldn't be so stressed out, so angry. My mother wouldn't be so unavailable, whatever. The child cannot afford, because its very existence depends upon the caregiver, and it, no, it's not even born with any sense of what people should be like. So the only explanation left is this sense that I am flawed, I am incomplete. There's something missing uh, unlovable about me. And this is a you know, there's an entire system of the brain that's actually there to activate guilt or remorse but it was only really generated to activate guilt and remorse in appropriate situations when we've acted in in selfish anti-tribal ways the entire brain is organized around attachment not just to individuals but to tribes we our entire ancestral history was spent in hunter gatherer collectives where we would spend our entire lifespan with five or six other people traveling around very often in nomadic existences and so if we pissed somebody off because we you know didn't report like all the berries we collected you know i, don't, I never liked that guy of that guy yeah then the remorse was a natural selection wiring that would incline us to feel bad, because if we did that often enough and you were ostracized or kicked out of this this clan, you'd be dead. There'd be no one, no one would be, you know, looking after your back, and unlike in contemporary societies, there would be no other clan that would accept you. If you stumbled upon another clan, they would sooner kill you and steal your resources and tools than they would ever allow you in. This is why evolutionary psychologists now say we all care far too much what other people think about us. You know, you get in a subway and somebody's looking at you, like you know, and we're like, what the fuck did I do? (laughs) What's the matter with you? You know. Uh, Because we actually now see hundreds of times the amount of people every day that our ancestors would see in their entire life. Our ancestors would only see and interact with those people uh, that they, they they spent their time traveling with. So it's deeply wired into us, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the dorsomedial regions of the brain. If it's dorsal, it'll have something to do with empathy and connection. Um, we are wired to care, you know, and and, and uh, be essentially uh, attuned to a certain degree to what other people think about us. Um, this is also why uh, today living can be, we're also not only constantly triggered when we don't need to be, but, uh you know, in the past, in our ancestral history, you lived with these people every day, so there would be an immediate um, uh, immediate contact with the person, and you'd have to resolve the issue you said something or they you know said something that you didn't understand or made a gesture that you were kind of angry with because you felt they didn't in some way reciprocate on a a gesture of kindness, you'd have to work it out with them. It was, there was only five other people. You know, what else are you going to do? Yeah, it would be right there. Today, you know, somebody can send you some kind of weird text, and now you're like, mm-hmm. Months can pass, right? And you're like, we don't, we, there's not that resolution. So we all, we can have these lingering, unresolved conflicts, or p- possible conflicts. Uh, which is why our brains have deeply uh, are not we're not actually living in brains that are ideally suited for the kind of the world we live in today. Um, core shame hijacks this social concern, this uh, remorse and and wired guilt that was established to. Appropriate remorse when we've done Something that was selfish But in childhood if we grow up In a context where we are not uh, Adequately Cared for or have subsequently In peer relations there's a lot Of damages then What happens is that circuit That was there to create Appropriate guilt now creates Inappropriate guilt It creates the sense that there's Something wrong with me there's something I've done something terrible. And we see this in entire spiritual traditions that have this sense that uh, people are fallen unless they do something uh, constantly that proves their worth. So core shame corrupts our instinct to be worthy of a tribe. It's a incapability of internalizing a felt sense of belonging. It's essentially a negative stance in regard to oneself. Some psychological uh, studies pinpoint a certain time in uh, a developmental milestone. I'll talk about a couple of these points. But between the age of two and three, up until this point, or up until two, children generally get an enormous degree of positive, hopefully positive, regard. But there's this age where parents, uh, I, I suspect, out of just sheer caregiving fatigue. And you know, after a couple of years of this, having to essentially put their lives on hold. And I haven't seen the band in three years, I haven't been able to go out for you know. So um, after a while, parents begin to use language as a a factor in trying to establish a sense of control. And so suddenly the the child gets bombarded with the words, no, no, no. One study showed that in the second year of life, a child hears negative commands of no and stop 200 times a day. Uh, The positive Rewards are almost invariably non verbal, but are the hug, the smile, the laughter, the playful tone. But language becomes associated with negative socializing um, commands. And very often the child's name will be linked with these negative, you know, uh, I don't, Danny, stop. Danny, what are you doing? the love of Christ, put down your sister, you know, et cetera. <laughs> so um, the child begins to associate uh, verbal commands with uh, very often there's something I've done wrong. And interestingly enough, Vygotsky, a great child psychologist, studied children when they start to develop inner speech, Think, thinking it's called, you know. Uh, LAUGHTER That's the clinical term, inner speech. Um, It starts at this period. And when children start to develop inner speech, what they do is they essentially mimic or repeat all of the words that are said to them by their parents. So you leave a child alone in a room and you mic them up. And what they'll say is, if, if the child's name is Joey, the child will very often say, Joey, don't with the boxes, don't throw the... etc. So the child already is beginning to associate its name with these commands and these socializing instructions. Now, if the parent, after saying no, repairs, it's called repairing, the the parent stops and smiles and gives a secure attunement where the child feels appreciated, then it's not stuck in this sympathetic nervous state where they're in a hyper alert and they're not essentially returned to rest and digest. If the parents fail to do that, then very often the child will remain stuck in this uh, activated state and the trigger will be its own name or its own sense of self. Brown and Elliot, uh, based on the work of some British developmental psychologists also suggest uh, in addition to inner language being uh, associated with core shame. They make a fascinating claim that um, if you grow up in a secure childhood where your needs are met reliably, when you look at yourself in the mirror, what you start to feel somatically is this sense of ease and comfort and uh, a, a sense of strength and a sense of confidence, and a sense of your body opens, you have a sense of pride. Oh, oops. Imagine that. That's a, uh, if we didn't, then when we look in the mirror, we'll actually feel nothing. There'll be no somatic, no physiological response. And that lack of a, of a somatic core state of being that feels empowering and feels uh, capable and feels lovable, if we don't have that, it turns into, again, what they posture as uh, self-esteem deficits or core shame. There's something incomplete. I don't feel anything when I think about myself. Therefore, there's something missing about me. Therefore, I need someone or something, something... If I'm avoided, I need an achievement, I need a great career, I need a lot of money to make myself feel good about myself. If I'm anxious, I need to constantly monitor this relationship which will fix and solve me to feel good about myself. So um, having a positive sense of self provides what we call resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from deficits, to not blame ourselves when we try something and it goes wrong. Uh, There's an innate sense of uh, being worthy that will encourage us to connect with others and not immediately pin the fault on this vague sense that, of course, things didn't work out, there's something wrong with me. If we have this positive sense of self, we're more likely to be creative we're more likely to be expressive because this uh, core self, just like a secure base, they're interwoven, they're, they're like this. You get one, you get the other, and back and forth. So uh, when you have a core sense, it also helps make sense of our experience. Life is filled with a wide variety. Sometimes people are kind and supportive. Sometimes close friends will not return a text or a call. Sometimes people who seem friendly at work will suddenly have inscrutable facial expressions. The less there's a core sense of worthiness, the more likely we are to, to have obsessive ideations triggered by negative events. The more we are like not likely to go and to process them with other people and to create meaning from them, we'll have this sense that, oh, it's just this it just goes to show, I'm unlovable. Um, it's associated, in fact, um, Casalino, a great psychologist, says that core shame and imposter syndrome, this constant sense I'll be found out, I'm never good enough at work, I'm always one step away from you know, failure or whatever, this, that it's, he believes it's responsible for that, Certainly I, in my work, see constantly that core shame leads to uh, procrastination. People can have lots of possibilities to embrace or opportunities to grow, but they will very often be reluctant to touch that which is the very um, conduit uh, to possible happiness or spiritual growth, because anything that's expressive or creative or um, authentic about ourselves that we want to show other people could recreate, of course, rejection. There's a possibility of rejection. People might not like our writing or our art or our dance or our spontaneity. And when the person with core shame experiences rejection, they, they, it hits them with this force that like, kicks them in the gut Of course, it only goes to show, what was I thinking? I'm unlovable. I'm not good enough. Um, We become easily overwhelmed and stressed, constantly having to prove ourselves. Perfectionism and workaholism are associated. In fact, so many of the people I work with, with anxious attachment, have market uh, tendencies towards workaholism, but at the same time, while they are dedicated, absolutely, they'll work 60 hours a week to prove their value, but if you encourage them to stop and just do something creative, it'll create a sense of terror or a sense of being found out. It creates a sense that oneself is vulnerable, fragile, and must be kept hidden, because if any negative response or rejection happens, it will fall apart. And so in some people, narcissists tend to compensate for this fragile, wounded core shame by constructing this grandiose ego which constantly needs to be fed with attention. And uh, as I said, there's a person right now that's doing this every fucking day all the time. And the news about it is in our faces all the time. Um, So this failure to link um, positive feelings with what's called our self-representation, our image, When you think your name, or when you think of an image of yourself, or when you see a photograph of yourself, if it creates this apprehension, oh my god, it's going to be bad, I don't want to look at it. I, you know, oh, there I am. Or you just don't feel anything when something that is your self-representation, if it doesn't create any positive somatic experience, then will very often be left with, again, this sense of incompletion. And it will create a a wariness of of embracing risks. So one of the new uh, practices in attachment psychology is uh, a guided visualization, much like the ideal parent. And it is similar to the ideal parent, which is uh, Almost identical to the early practice of David Nisati, um, there's this practice of visualizing uh, situations and actions that we would feel proud of, actions that are pro tribal, where we've helped someone. Interestingly enough, studies show it doesn't have to be uh, a real thing we've done. You could just visualize something that you would like to do that's helpful to others. Your right hemisphere is responsive to imagery, so even if it you've not actually you know stopped and done after school work uh, you'll get the i did I, I did that it was a nightmare for me It's playing ukulele <laughs> some of screaming children. why is he playing rap music. <laughs> I got no neural benefits or payoffs for. It. <laughs> I might as well have just visualized it. <laughs> I would have come up with a much you know more rewarding visual of children beaming from ear to ear as I you know played you know these children's songs that I hobbled together. But, uh, anyway, I digress. So what we do is we create a visual that represents a pro-tribal, and I I say pro-tribal because if you visualize something where you've helped others and they're acknowledging it, it will activate your dorsal and anterior cingulate cortex, and that's the part of the brain that actually regulates uh, endorphins and serotonin. So those two will actually begin to skyrocket. You'll feel better in your body, you'll feel less pain, The same circuit in the brain that creates physiological pain after an injury also creates pain after an attachment loss. But, contrarily, that part of the brain also, uh, when we have um, positive social interactions that are based on uh, feeling that our our behavior in some way is leading to the well-being of others, it will... Activate that circuit as well. If you like to read more about it, there's a book called Social by Lieberman, where all the science is laid out. So, so we visualize something where we a situation where we've done something really positive, and then just like we did in the ideal parent, we try to connect with a somatic sense of pride and esteem, right? So we start to feel that openness in the chest, that comfort, that sort of sense of uh, head lifting, that sense of being able to meet people's gaze, that sense of uh, confidence as we walk, whatever we start to feel when we've done something that is helpful to others. And then what we do is we remove the image of the situation, we replace it with our own image, as you would appear. So what we're doing is we're now beginning to link our self-representation, our image, with our, these positive feelings in the body. This is essential because core shame is not a story that you carry around in your head. It's not a belief that you can recite. People of core shame have no idea. They don't walk around saying, you know, oh, fuck me. You know. <laughs> A, I mean, some of them do, but, you know, most of us don't do that. You know, oh, what an asshole, I'm incomplete, I don't believe I deserve love. Nobody's, you know, hopefully you're not walking around saying that. I mean, but the implicit belief is locked in the fact that we literally, when we think of ourselves, we get stuck as that child who's two or three years old, who's had the parent saying, no, stop, what's the matter with you, what are you doing? And that parent doesn't then co-regulate them back to rest and digest. The child is stuck with that sense that there's something wrong with me. It's a feeling, it's not an idea. And feelings are again right hemispheric, implicit. They're deeply stored, deeply stored. So to speak to these regions, we don't do it through language, affirmations, looking at yourself in the mirror, but then saying a bunch of words, not gonna work. You know, I'm lovable. I'm a terrific boy. What a good-looking, bold Jewish guy I am! <laughs> That's not going to do anything because your right hemisphere doesn't understand a word of it. You, to the degree of his language skills, it's not. It doesn't work that way at all. But it does understand imagery, and it does understand your body. Your right hemisphere is far more uh, synaptically, uh, axonically connected to your body through the insula. So your right hemisphere knows how you feel and it links it up with images. And those images actually, and associations, determine how you act. Samat Damasio, the great neuropsychologist, showed that people make decisions in their life not based on what they think, but based on how they feel. So if you want to take pro-self actions you have to start feeling, literally, feeling good about yourself. It's not uh, an axiom, it's actually the truth. Um, This practice is mirrored in early Buddhism, Sila and Nusati, where the Buddha urged daily practice of reflecting and visualizing the beneficial acts of kindness, generosity, and uh, uh, following the morals of spiritual practice, to feel good about yourself. He urged this because I believe that there was a deep awareness even then that you can't think yourself into being worthy or feeling worthy or feeling esteem. You have to literally create the feeling of being worthy for it to actually have any place to land on. So we are now gonna do this visualization meditation. This is the core shame. of any of you, by the way, are therapists or social workers, and you'd like to know where a lot of these practices are laid out, uh, I can tell you where you can find them, because I'm a bit of a nerd, I think it's called. So, uh. So, just returning to that, you know, closing your eyes, bobble again, just allow your body to come to a stop on its own, and just, you know, finding a felt balance that feels good to you, and then gently tilting the head, the lifting the chin to tilting the head up, like we're again, we're looking at the top of a building. And settling in. So we're gonna do a little tummy-ata meditation just to start. So first starting with just awareness of yourself breathing and just inclined the out-breath as long and smooth not pushing it out just releasing And adding into this ongoing awareness of just the sensations of your body expanding and contracting, that energy lift up in the in-breath and then this sense of your torso, the front of your body relaxing, softening, releasing in the exhalation Maybe the air entering tip of the nose and leaving. Mm-hmm. So with this awareness, ongoing presence of the breath, opening up your awareness now so that you can hear the sounds that are happening around you. Let's start with the furthest sound to your left. Just imagine you could focus entirely, just what's the furthest, most distant sound to the left? And then the, Furthest most distant sound to the right, and then try to spread your awareness from the right most distant sound filling in, becoming aware of all the sounds between the distant right and the distant left. So you now have this landscape of sounds, like you're listening to a, you've just arrived on earth. You're an anthropologist from another planet. You just landed in a body And you don't know what it's like to hear. You don't know any of these sounds. You have no judgment on what's a good sound or a bad sound. You don't know what it's like to be in a body that's breathing You've landed in this body for the first time with no presumption of what you should be experiencing. Just an array of sensations. Every sound is welcome, but don't visualize what's creating the sound. You hear a siren. Don't view, don't visualize the vehicle. Just so it's, it's part of this ambience recording you're listening to. You now find the topmost sensation in your body, keeping the sounds and your awareness and the breath. But find the topmost sensation, and then the lowest sensation—the sit bones or the toes. Feel the sensation that's at the utmost front of your body, maybe your belly, your chest. (coughs) And then the sensation to the backmost sensation you're sitting on a chair, just feeling the sensation of contact with the back of the chair. And now trying to fill in that your awareness is a scanner Scanning down from the top and becoming aware of the entire universe of sensations that are comprised of your interior experience. Again, you've never been in a human body before. You have no idea what to expect. It's all just... All the sensations are like stars, perhaps, fluttering in a dark night sky. Body sensations just being separated by space. The energy of the breath in and out. The sounds. And we'll just reside here for a little while. Again, keeping your awareness as spacious, open, receptive. If thoughts arrive, right, that's all right. Just allow them in the background and keep all the sensations we've talked about as much as you can, as you can in awareness in the front of your attention. So at this time, bring the awareness once again. But before we do that, actually, bring your awareness to the front of your body. And just see if there's any tightness or ease in your chest, your abdomen, your throat. Your face. Just survey this front of the body where there's so many expressive muscles that can either clench or relax, the area where gut feelings are most clearly discerned. Just note how this area feels. And then bringing into the screen in your mind a movie theater, often just above where we sense our eyes, behind the forehead, or wherever you visualize. I'd like you to visualize a situation where you're doing something that brings some benefit to others something that enacts your best sense of self something that embodies your aspiration to be part of other beings healing health something that makes you feel you're an upstanding member of a tribe it doesn't matter if this visual is something that you actually do for something that isn't an aspiration, just visualize yourself staying with, offering kindness and attention, care, and just visualize a recognition. see if you can really see what an appreciative expression would look like, or bring to mind a context in your life already where you experience this sense of being integrally involved in someone else's well-being. The goal is to create a felt sense of esteem. Esteem feels like an open energy moving up through the chest, not blocked. The sense of the shoulders opening, chest opening, maybe a slight, ever-so-slight smile just creating a state of being that is experienced when we do something beneficial And just, if you can find even the slightest articulation of this sense of worthiness, self-value, just try to use the breath or some way just to spread it, make it a little bit, the ease a little greater. Or the warmth in the chest, just spread it. Maybe up through the throat or down to the belly or the back of the neck. And then lastly... Even if you can find just the slightest sense of ease and comfort in your body Just hold that in your awareness Drop the image Of other people and just bring into an awareness, your awareness Something that represents you, your image, your name Just spreading this feeling of being esteemable, this feeling, and linking it with something that represents you. Maybe just feeling that ease in the chest. any representation of yourself. You can even have a slight unforced smile as you think of yourself. Open up your chest a little. Creating a embodied state of strength as you visualize yourself.